Welcome to the Thirst for More podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Smitley, where we sit down and talk with strength coaches, personal trainers, nutritionalists, and other professionals in the fitness and strength and conditioning field to help athletes, parents, coaches, small business owners help level up their game to provide athletes and clients world-renowned success, either in the weight room, on the field, or on the platform. Enjoy today's episode. On episode 22 of the Thirst for More podcast, I do another solo episode, and we discuss the difference between concurrent and conjugate training. What are they, how they differ, how they can be utilized at the same time, and how many people get them confused in terms of what they're doing with their own training or how they're actually training athletes. We personally use the concurrent training uh, model at Thirst exclusively with our athletes and we've had great success with it and I kind of go on to discuss why we use that method and some of the the positives behind that method um, in terms of residuals and how we kind of stack certain training sessions together. But we also talk about how conjugate training can also be beneficial and how in, in many times both systems are usually utilized together but also the main takeaway that with conjugate training is it's how you sequence things to be able to build adaptations. And it's not necessarily all the bands and chains and box squat variations and, and what the powerlifting terminology has kind of put on to be quote-unquote conjugate. Conjugate training has just made it popular that you need to change your variations around to be able to, to limit the ability of you having uh, some hang-ups in your programming and to prevent you from uh, being stag- stagnating with your, your training and being able to make progress because... Part of, making, part of training, I'm sorry, is about making progress continuously in the right direction, even if it's only just 1%. So concurrent training and conjugate training get mixed up all the time. I totally understand why. Sometimes it can be confusing, but I do think in this podcast episode, I do a great job of just kind of breaking this down in simple concepts in terms of why you might want to use some kind of concurrent training model in most cases than not. And then how you could potentially use conjugate training with other bottles um, if you don't want to do a concurrent training method. If I talk about how you might want to even use that in with some block training. So the the conjugate versus concurrent debate is always kind of, you know, are they the same? Are they not? It's just wishy-washy and it's just terminology. Da, da, da. But I genuinely think that there is a difference. And I think knowing that difference can help you not only differentiate how you train your athletes and be able to make some progress, but for those people that are just like, man, I I'm just doing conjugate training and they really don't truly understand what it is. I'm going to break it down for you and try to give you the, the quick lowdown on how that works. So enjoy episode 22 on conjugate and concurrent training. Hey, this is Brandon Smilly. We're doing another solo episode this week. And this week we're specifically talking about concurrent versus conjugate training. What is it? What's the differences? How the terminology kind of gets mixed up between different aspects of training and how, how people communicate a system and are they even communicating the right system when they say they're quote-unquote doing conjugate or quote-unquote doing concurrent training. So let's first kind of get some definitions out of the way and, and, and what is the difference between concurrent and conjugate training. So the, the first thing that I would recommend is that concurrent training means that we're training multiple qualities simultaneously Preferably in a microcycle, and in here we're going to we're going to define a microcycle as a week of training. That seems to be the easiest. It tends to be what most training programs 
use as a structure in terms of how many weeks out or how many weeks of a training block you're going to go. You know, you can have quote-unquote eight-day training cycles or six days or nine days or ten days. It just gets to be a little confusing sometimes, especially if you're having to use um, very rigid guidelines or you've got schedules and you're working with athletes or you know competitions it can be a little confusing to try to kind of backtrack and plan training if you've got like 10 day uh, training cycles so we're, we're really just going to describe this as a week so seven days um, in terms of that so you'd be training multiple qualities simultaneously within that micro cycle and then conjugate is in my opinion almost like coupling we're going to use certain aspects and we're going to sequence them together um, to elicit a certain training effect. So this is going to be the variation or the amount that something is going to change within a given training cycle. So that could be a micro cycle, that could be a macro cycle, could be a meso cycle. Um, you know, it could be a four-year plan. It, it really just depends on how your training is laid out. But conjugate is more so of what is being changed to make an adaptation occur so most people say they're doing conjugate training and so when we think of conjugate we usually like to think of bands chains specialty bars box squats all that great stuff and those are all great the tools don't necessarily make it conjugate it's the matter of rotation and how they are rotated that would make it conjugate training so why do people get this confused when they say i'm doing conjugate or i'm doing concurrent well a lot of times a conjugate program involves concurrent training models but a concurrent training model does not have to use conjugate let me say that one more time a conjugate model in most cases has concurrent training at aspects to it especially when we're thinking about west side but concurrent training does not have to be conjugate so what does that mean let's take the first bullet here conjugate training is usually concurrent so most conjugate training that people are doing in the powerlifting realm, you know, they're having two max effort days, two dynamic effort days, and then they're using repetition effort method to build up their weaknesses. So they've got that max effort lower, that max effort upper, the dynamic effort lower, the dynamic effort upper. Those are your four main training sessions, and in each one of those training sessions, you're going to have repetition effort-based aspects. And then on your max effort stuff, you're ideally going to rotate your movements every one to three weeks. Um, and then same thing with your dynamic effort. You're probably going to have waves. You know, you have some kind of wave protocol that you're using for your dynamic effort training, whether that be three-week, four-week, five-week, two-week. Um, I've, I've seen it kind of all in, in terms of that. So that's going to be waved. And then your accessory work is also probably going to be waved. So, um, you know, might you might stick with the same exercises for three weeks two weeks and then maybe four weeks or you might change your accessory work up every week just kind of depends upon how you have your training laid out but generally people say they're doing conjugate training they're talking about having the two max effort and the two dynamic effort days this is what they mean and they're rotating their bars their bands or chains uh, on their max effort work weekly and trying to establish a new pr or new record um, and then they change it and that's supposed to prevent accommodation and typically it does. Typically it goes pretty well. Um, but then you've also, but you never hear me say, oh, I'm doing concurrent training. Okay, so why is concurrent training not always to be conjugate? Well, because you can train. We use, I'll, I'll say right now, we use a concurrent training model at Thirst for our athletes. But we don't do conjugate. So 
here's what I mean by that. Our athletes do four-week training blocks. goes with our billing cycle, basically a month. Um, and the exercises stay the same for the whole month. So if they're a three-day-a-week kid, two-day-a-week kid, doesn't matter. The exercises stay the same. So if they're in Monday, Wednesday, Friday, their Monday exercises are the same, their Wednesday exercises are the same, or their Friday exercises are the same for the whole month. And then we waive that. You know, we do some undulating periodization, but we train all the fitness qualities in not only that given training session, but we also do it throughout the week. So um, let's take a two-day-a-week kid, for example. You know, they're going to have something explosive. Um, usually we do one or two things explosively, so it could be med ball throws, slams, jumps, sprints, prowlers, dumbbell jerks. Um, you know, hang cleans, um, dumbbell snatches, things like that. You know, any of those things could be wound up being together. Um, and then we move on to our strength exercise. So whether that be a squat or a deadlift, they're two-way week kid, it's usually going to be a squat or deadlift um, or a hinge pattern, I should say. So it might be an RDL. Um, it could be a hex bar deadlift. It could be a sumo deadlift. It could be off mats. It could be a pin pull. Um, you know, something like that. It could be a safety bar box squat, front squat. Just a regular free squat, goblet squat, um, you know, something like that. Then it depends on the day, but usually one of those days we'll also put in a heavy upper body movement. So that could be your four press, your bench press, your board press, um, your neutral grip dumbbell bench press, dumbbell four press. For many young kids, it's just push-ups. Um, it just kind of depends, but usually I like to put that on with our deadlift days. Um, since they were pulling with our hands, I try to prevent to have the, the heavy pulling exercise. So then we usually have a heavy pull on the day that we squat. So that would be, um, you know, like a chest supported row, um, a dumbbell row, inverted row, um, any kind of machine row. Um, you know, it could be a chin. I usually use chins later on. I usually prefer to horizontal pull my kids heavier than I do vertical. Um, uh, but you kind of get the idea. And then we, you know, we, we work our way down and we do some abdominal work and some minor accessory stuff for hamstrings, um, shoulders, upper back, depending on what the kid kind of needs. So you kind of see how we're training all the qualities in that given training session, but then we do it again later on the week. And even if we're a three-day-a-week kid, that's kind of what it looks like. We're just going to probably have a lower, upper, and a full-body split where the full-body day will deadlift, the lower-body day will squat. The upper-body day, we obviously bench press in some capacity or, or push in some kind of capacity. Um, but then we still have something fast at the beginning of the session, so it could be different broad jumps or vertical jumps. Like I mentioned in the, the, the past one, for upper-body days, could be a lot more med ball throws or slams or dumbbell jer- jerks. Um, we might even speed bench and our heavy upper-body work may not even be a push. It may be a pull. Um, you know, so basically that trickles on down through the days and through the weeks. So concurrently, we're training all the major fitness qualities in one day or one week. So we do it basically in one day, um, but you can definitely do it in one week as well. And that's what conjugate does. Conjugate uses concurrent training methods in a week where I'm mainly talking about with my concurrent model, we're doing it in a day. But... At the same time, our training programs stay the same for four weeks. The only thing that changes is our sets and reps. Um, our order and everything stays the same for that given month. And then we reassess based upon whether, you know, in season, out of season, um, how we kind of adjust those those numbers and the volume and the foot or the ground contacts, I'm sorry, um, and all that kind of thing, all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> we make those decisions like that. So 
hopefully that gives you a little bit of an idea of, of what the difference is between concurrent and conjugate training. Now, why do people get this confused? Why do people say, I'm doing conjugate training? Well, I think a lot of people just think that that means you're changing your bars and stuff, and it does. Um, but they may not actually be doing, I think a lot of people are doing more conjugate training than they think they are. I think if you, if you rotate your, your variation, even every couple of weeks, you're technically doing some form of conjugate training, just you're being methodical about how you're doing your conjugate training. And I think that's where most people make the mistake in conjugate training, if you happen to be a powerlifter especially, but they don't think how those movements are sequenced. So conjugate system was actually originally called the conjugate sequence system. And the idea is that you pick something that's so far away from the competitive movement or the, the competitive time of season, and then as you get gradually closer towards the competition or the competitive season, it begins to have more realistic carryover to what you're trying to improve. So um, for my first example, I'm going to use like a powerlifter. Um, and anyone that's kind of ran my training programs for powerlifting, especially during meat prep, will definitely understand this. But usually you're not doing a whole lot of competitive, we'll do some light competitive squatting, benching, and deadlifting early on in like a 12-week cycle. They're very usually lower RPE caps, and they're usually just technical work. They're not heavy, and then I, I really hit you with supplemental work movement, which usually is the what is usually being the, the conjugate aspect. I'm going to pick exercises that are going to bring up your competitive squat. So that hopefully each week that we do a competitive squat, even though they're not hard and heavy, um, it's going to help that, that feel better. But you're going to pick exercises that are going to gradually get you closer towards competitive movement. So in powerlifting, the competitive squat movement is the, the back squat. So you wouldn't ideally, when you're running a conjugate system, want to back squat all 12 weeks of prep um, linearly in fashion. You're going to run out of juice, you're going to run out of steam, um, and you might have some, some nagging issue problems, you might get hurt, you might overtrain. So the idea is that you use different exercises sequenced together to bring up the competitive squat without having competitive squat all the time. So you got to kind of know where you need um, help and and work from a weakness standpoint, um, but it also gives you an idea of how you're going to sequence it. So let's take some different variations of the squat and how you would sequence them. So you basically got to work back backwards. So if let's just say all you have is a barbell, okay? I'm not going to talk about any kind of specialty bars. We're just going to talk about four ways you can sequence. So we're going to take four three-week waves of how you're going to sequence the competitive movement to be able to, to peak it correctly with, with conjugate, so to speak. So the last three weeks are obviously going to be our competitive squat. So that's going to be your competition, everything there. Belts, knee wraps, whatever it is you're using, low bar, high bar, however you choose to do it, that's going to be your last three weeks. Um, and then the week, three weeks before that, you're going to pick something that's a little bit different. So me personally, I would probably have them um, either box squat or they would pause squat. And then we would move further away from that. So once we've had the barbell on the back, then we probably need to figure out how to change that a little bit. So I probably would pick like a front squat. And then the week before that, I probably would have picked like a front squat versus bands or a front squat versus chains or a reverse band front squat or maybe even a front squat box squat. Something that's so far away from the competitive movement, it's going to be hard to even tell it resembles it other than the fact that it's a squat. 
Now, with most conjugate training, you, those people usually like to use a bunch of different bars and bands and chains of variety. And when you're off in the off season, I think the variety of your exercises just needs to change to be able to um, continue to teach you how to strain and be able to keep some heavy weights in your hands. But you know, once you find a meet, you kind of got to work backwards. Even if you're 26 weeks out, you know, you don't want to probably take a reverse band straight bar back squat. 26 weeks out it might be a place to give you a starting point maybe maybe you might use it as that but you might be better off doing like a reverse band safety bar squat something that just does not resemble the competitive movement at all and then you slowly chip away over a couple weeks of being able to do that so the idea is that also the way this is waved if you kind of noticed i did it last time the the load should gradually get heavier heavier just naturally so you wouldn't pick an overload movement um, at the er- at the beginning of a training cycle. You would probably want to pick something that's more of a deficit, something that is going to require loads to be lower naturally. So you know that's where a, a safety bar box squat comes in, or a close stance safety bar box squat. So the weights are so low that you're probably not even at like 85 percent of what your actual true one rep max is with a straight bar um, with that that movement. So that's another thing that needs to be kept in mind when it comes to conjugate training is how you're sequencing your exercises. Can they help the next one in line of the sequence to be able to get you the biggest adaptation um, from your sequencing? So, and it's obviously the squat, but then we got to think about, you know, from a sports performance standpoint, how are we going to sequence these things to... Um, aid the athlete. So, I mean, first it's obviously going to depend upon what kind of level of athlete you have. Um, you know, if you've got some kind of kid, I don't recommend doing any kind of peaking. I think just as long as everything is progressive in nature, um, things become a little bit more challenging. Um, you have maybe a down training block here and there to be able to backtrack and continue to work on some basics and then you go forward again. Um, I think you have some options there. But generally, when you're with your kids, you're going to have a very progressive model where everything's just going to progressively get harder and harder in terms of variation. But with your accessory work, you can cycle through those. And eventually, what used to be main movements can now become accessory work. So case in point, using the squat. Most of our kids start off with a goblet box squat as their, their primary squat pattern that we use to teach. And our goal is eventually to get them to certain loads where we take the box away. And then we just gobble squat the heck out of them so they hit the numbers that we want. And then we pick a movement based upon their sport. So it could be a front squat, could be a safety bar box squat, could be a safety bar squat, could be um, some dynamic dynamic effort squatting, could be camber bar. It just depends upon what the athlete needs. We're very big on the safety bar box squat and the front squat, just to let you know. But we do use other variations. But with those athletes that begin to start using specialty bars and box squatting in season, you know, if we feel like they need some additional leg volume, we can use a goblet squat as a variation for their accessory work, where that normally used to be a main movement. So that opens up other doors for you as well if, you're, if your system progresses the way that it's supposed to. Um, it just depends. So, you know, same thing with a band pull-through. Many of our kids learn how to do a band pull-through to be able to hinge and to be able to cement that. We usually like to put that on one day, and then we go through our hinge technique progressions on the next, so they're not entirely foreign uh, from it, but they're constantly hinging every training session, so that way they get more practice. It's just a different variation to be able to provide some different stimuli in a different learning environment and different feedback mechanisms. 
But the band pull-through, in my opinion, is usually your accessory work. But for some people, that might be their main hinging exercise. Same thing with the glute bridge. If they're very out of shape, the glute bridge might be your main hinging exercise. Well, what are you going to do for accessory work when that would normally be accessory work, right? So those have to progress naturally and appropriately to get your, your clients and your athletes to improve. That is also a type of conjugate training. You go up to the next level. So if you're doing a glute bridge, you go to a back elevated, back elevated glute bridge. Then you might go to a back elevated glute bridge versus a band. Um, and then you can go to a single leg glute bridge and a back elevated single leg glute bridge. And then against the band or a foot elevated. And then you start bringing them up to their feet. <clears throat> and, and you see how those progressively get a little bit harder each time. That is um, conjugate sequencing at its finest, which in my opinion is honestly just a progression system right it's progressively getting harder um, to get somebody better or improve a certain quality in this case the hinge pattern so just because somebody says they're doing conjugate what are they do they understand what they mean by doing conjugate most programs have a, a layer of conjugate to them to some degree they may just not conjugate things very frequently so you know if you're running a four-week training block and everything stays the same for four weeks Technically, you're doing conjugate to an extent because it's going to change the next four weeks. All the exercises are going to level up. You're going to pick something a little more difficult, a little more challenging. It's going to sequence. However, in current training, we're really, really talking about training multiple qualities within a given training session or a given microcycle and then stacking that for a prolonged period amount of time. We're working on everything all the time. Now, why would this be important? Why is the conjugate sequence system and concurrent training why are these methods of training important popular useful there's a couple different reasons the conjugate part of it to me that's very important that is it involves involves the athlete and client not getting stale and burnout so you provide some variety either every couple weeks or every week depending upon if you're doing powerlifting or your training clients or whatever but you're providing some variety to them to, to get rid of that staleness. And for a lot of people, training is very mental, especially if you happen to be a personal trainer or you work with the average adult. You know that they get, they're usually exercising because it's better for their health um, and they're, they've hired somebody to help them because they don't want to think about it. They want to take that part of the equation out. They want to show up, get a good quality workout, improve their health, feel better, sleep better, lose some weight, whatever, look better naked. But for, um, you know, for us, people like me, you know, we thoroughly enjoy training. Well, you know, it's nice to have some variety and be able to do some cool stuff. But that's what your conjugate training is probably doing for a lot of your your non-athletes, for your regular personal training clients. It provides a variety. It's also, you got to remember, since that's their goal, as long as we get them to their goals safely and effectively – how we choose to use a certain hinge pattern or squat pattern or press pattern or pull pattern honestly probably doesn't matter that much. As long as we're training the musculature that we need to train, we're making sure we're taking their injury history into account, we're picking smart exercise choices, their sequence properly, you know, your progressions look well. I really think what you pick doesn't matter all that much. Obviously, your clients are going to have certain things they like and they don't like, um, so you got to give them a blend of that, but conjugate is very useful in that regard. The other big thing is when you start talking about high-level athletes and competitive strength athletes and powerlifters, conjugate works well because when you change stimulus, 
you're going to prevent there being overuse injuries. So if you bench press every week for 52 weeks, your shoulders are probably going to start to hate you eventually. Um, you're probably going to start to have some tendonitis in your elbows. Um, there's just a lot of negative consequences that come from doing the same repeatable action over and over and over and over and over. Um, the body is not necessarily meant to be loaded like that in that capacity repetitively over and over. And so that's why you see a lot of barbell athletes not make it with the straight bar variations and have these really long, prosperous careers because their body just can't handle that wear and tear consecutively over and over and over again. They need some more variety. I think conjugates were a great option for that. Um, and the way you conjugate your, your exercises can help prevent you from having that wear and tear. Um, and then obviously for your, your athletic performance, the same thing can be said, except they're obviously not powerlifters. So providing them some different stimulus and kind of throwing them off their game, quote unquote, um, you know, changing the stimulus, mixing things up can help provide some extra stimulus bump. Um, but also kind of prepare them for sport just in general because a lot of things are unpredictable. Um, so having some different loads, whether it be front racked or a safety bar or, you know, going at spans or chains and learning how to, to grind through different things uh, and being placed into different different um, stimuli like that can do a lot for your athletic population um, as well. So you get main thing is you get health, you get some variety, um, you prevent overuse injuries, and then obviously, like we talked about earlier, you stack and, and conjugate those things in the appropriate order that you should, um, you'll see some positive training effects come later down the road. Now, the concurrent training, what are the, the benefits of that? Well, one thing we have to mainly talk about are residuals. Okay, so residuals are how long a certain training adaptation is trained and that it will stick around is the best way to put it. Um, Or we will see a decrease in performance from that aspect being trained. So the main ones are, um, you think about speed and power, um, you think you're about your strength, you think about your aerobic capacity, and then you kind of got that middle ground, that kind of glycolytic, you know, in a weight room that's probably more of like your hypertrophy ranges, um, how much that kind of sticks around, um, or if you want to say glycolytic in terms of how you're doing your conditioning, how long those stay around. So I will tell you that I do not have these numbers right in front of me, but in general, your speed and your power residual is five to seven days. So if we do speed and power training on Monday by pretty much if we don't train again until the next Monday, we probably are going to see a performance decrease over the course of the week, especially on the weekend. So if you have an athlete that competes on the weekend, you need to make sure you're training your speed and power, ideally four days out, three days out. That way that speed work that you did is going to positively um, benefit the athlete at the day of competition. So the five to seven is usually whenever you're going to see a, 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 I think it's like a 10% decrease. Basically, you're within 90% of what you did. So let's say if you, um, let's talk about the power clean, just an easy thing to, to, to kind of think of. And let's not talk about the power Let's talk about a vertical jump. Vertical jumps would be good. A little more applicable to sport. If you have an athlete that has a, you do some vertical jump training and they've got a 30-inch vertical when you're doing that. So you got them up to 30 inches. Well, if you don't train any power or triple extension-based stuff to help aid that within that five to seven days, 
you can see a 10% de- decrease, they is a chance that only 90, they only hold on to 90% of that. So within that five to seven day range, they could start to see a performance decrease. So you could see them only having a 28 or a 27 inch vertical. That could be a big, big deal for a basketball player, right? Three inches is quite a bit. Um, it's just because it's not been trained hard enough. So, um, and then that's, Basically, you extrapolate that out for all your other power exercises, right, or your speed exercises. So it's not saying that it's guaranteed it's going to happen, but usually within five to seven days, that's your residual, you need to be training some kind of speed and power again. So the nice thing that you notice about that is if you pretty much train speed and power a couple times a week, you're going to do that. Next one is strength. Strength usually has a 30-day residual, plus or minus about three to five days. So we'll just call it between 25 and 30 days that you have a strength residual. That means you can train your strength. You you say you can do a really good hard strength workout for your your bench press. And that residual will stay with the athlete for a little over three weeks, pretty much between three and four weeks. So you could not bench press for three or four weeks, go bench press again, and you'll be able to hit 90% of what you hit. So if you hit 300 pounds, you'll be able to hit 270 within that 21, that 25, 30-day period. That's pretty impressive. That's a pretty good long residual, right? It's kind of hard to think about. Man, i got to bench press every day. Eh, science says you really don't. You could get away with bench pressing from a strength standpoint every other week and potentially still make progress. Now, um, the, the other question you have to begin to ask yourself is recovery. You know, you can't just bench press, you know, if that's what you did, but then, you know, later on the week you did some dumbbell hypertrophy work, you know, then you're training the same musculature. So that's a different question, okay? We're talking about the residual of the adaptation of what you're training, which is the strength component of the bench press, not the musculature, the strength component, okay? So knowing that with your athletes, that helps you be able to formulate what's a little bit more important, especially during in-season or off-season and how long something can can. Uh, be achieved and, and be kept and your aerobic capacity is also within that time frame as well it's about a 28 30 day period i believe um that your aerobic training can hold so you know you have a good strong um, aerobic base and you're training your aerobic capacity if you don't train that for basically three weeks you're probably going to be within within three four weeks you're probably going to be able to run up to 90 percent of your best with no training that's how long that that um, that adaptation can stick around, how long you can hold on to something. Um, and then the glycolytic, I believe, is in the middle zone there. I believe it's like in a 10 to 14-day period. So, you know, talking about your hypertrophy work that we are talking about, basically you got about a week and a half to two weeks that you need to be able to keep training hypertrophy um, to be able to maintain that quality. So knowing that... That's what I like about concurrent training is that we train all these qualities all the time. And as you can see from a speed and power standpoint, that's incredibly important. We've got to be able to train speed and power more than once a week if we want to improve it. We can't just do um, one speed and agility session a week and expect to get better. We need to do multiple. So that's one big caveat of trying to push people into training twice a week, especially in season. Um, is that we can work on that speed, agility, power twice a week in season and actually get you faster. We can maintain and even improve upon that that speed and power, and I think that's very important. Obviously, you can tell your strength is not as big, but I do believe it's important that you train that every week. Um, you can just hit one big exercise 
every week and you'll be able to make some good progress um, and then you have to have your accessory work and all that kind of stuff. So, But the nice thing is if you need to pull back and take a week off, hence the famous deload, everyone talks about deloading, um, deloading works because you still train but you're taking away the hard nervous system part, the strength. So, you know, you, you pull peel back on your heavy squats, your heavy bench press, your heavy deadlift, your heavy, um, maybe even your heavy cleans. That's a little iffy on the power thing. Um, but, you know, in my opinion, you still have to have a decent amount of strength, but still power. But let's we'll not talk about that exercise for this. But those, let's say you use those three main lifts, you can pull back on those in the week of a really big competition and just train the speed qualities. So you can do some jumps, some speed squats, speed deadlifts, very light accessory work and get out. And your athletes are actually going to super compensate and probably be better on competition day, which I think is very important. I think a lot of athletes don't think about how those residuals work, and I think that's why dynamic effort training for strength sport athletes is very important. People don't think about that speed component. They only think about the strength, where if you can improve that speed component, I think you'll get a little bit uh, faster and more explosive in that sport. Um, but obviously for athletes, that's also very important, whether you're talking about your vertical jumps, your broad jumps, um, you know, your triple extension-based exercises, that's going to help um, catapult your athletes further in the process. So, to quickly talk about these one more time, concurrent training is how you sequence things to be able to elicit a certain adaptation. Concurrent training is training things at the same time in a microcycle or even in a given training session to be able to stack that up. Um, I'm sure you heard on one of my podcast episodes, if you listen to the one with Todd Hammer, he talks about surfing the curve. And basically that's what we try to do with our athletes um, and the way that we train. We do our very fast, explosive things first. Then we move into our strength-based stuff to where it basically slows down. And then we hit our accessory work and we get out. So we, we basically go from that high velocity down to that low velocity through the course of the training session. Um, and, and that basically helps guide us. So you, know, you, can, you can pick how you want to do that. That's up to you. Um, everybody has different things that they do, especially when you're peaking. You, know, you might use some post-activation potentiation. That's going to mix up where you're at on that curve. Um, but that would still help you fall into that concurrent training model. Um, to be able to train things simultaneously. So, I mean, this is just my personal opinion, but I think if you train athletes um, in any capacity and you're not using a concurrent training model, I think you are vastly behind um, on being able to improve athletes. We do it with every single one of the athletes we work with. Every single one of them use concurrent training. Even the – I've only had one athlete that I've used uh, a true conjugate layout with in terms of being able to have a max effort lower max effort upper dynamic effort lower dynamic effort upper um, but i still had all the qualities trained in a given training session it was just methodically trained out um, so we would still do our jumps and throws and stuff before we ever um did our heavy work i think nate harvey is a good person to communicate to about this um, if you were interested in more of it, his book, Conjugate You, we've had him on the, the podcast, and that was very, very insightful, and we've used some of that stuff as well. So that's the main difference between conjugate and concurrent training. I try to keep this episode short and sweet, um, try to make it as simple as possible, make sure you understand the, the differences, how they might be, be used. Um, I, I think people overcomplicate it, but the people also say they're doing one thing and they're kind of doing another 
Um, I think most people that do conjugate training for powerlifting are actually doing concurrent training if they are not thinking about how they're laying out their max effort work. Some people do think about that a lot more. Some don't. Um, but there's also conjugate training um, in a lot of programs that are not concurrent. So you could use a block approach and have con- or conjugate stuff involved. You know, you could have an acclimation phase where you're using the safety bar. Or I'm sorry, accumulation phase where you're using the safety bar. And then you could have that transitional phase where you're, or the transmutation phase, I'm sorry, not transition, transmutation phase where you, you know, use a front squat um, or a box squat and then your, you know, your, your realization phase. So you're basically a kind of like you're peaking your heavy one. You go back to the competitive movement and hit a couple weeks. And then your transitional phase, you go to a, to a specialty bar to give the shoulders some rest. Um, you know, that's still conjugate. Uh, it's just not concurrent training because if there's no speed qualities trained um, from the force velocity curve standpoint, you're technically not doing concurrent training. You're just doing conjugate. So think that through. I know that was probably a lot. If you have any questions, um, feel free to get a hold of me either on Instagram or shoot me an email. Um, visit us at thirstgym.com and fill out a contact thing, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Um, this is just a very good topic that's kind of uh, deep to my heart because we do use – uh, concurrent training in our gym exclusively with all of our athletes um, you know there might be a rare chance where I don't but I just think there's too many good benefits to not be using that um, I'm very known as being a conjugate heavy guy in terms of how I program my, my power lifters and that's very true there's conjugate qualities involved but again it's also a concurrent system um, but I do believe that there are ways that you uh, do this correctly rather than just kind of blindly picking an exercise out of the hat and saying hey we're going to do this one or we're going to do that one. I think you'll find out that if you sequence things a little bit better, you'll probably end up having some more progress, not only in your own training programs, but also for your athletes and your clients. And just remember that's all contextual, that even your personal training clients should have some kind of sequence. Usually we like to call that progressions and how they're going to progress and move on to more challenging exercises. That's still conjugate. Um, you're just sequencing things appropriately um, to get a specific adaptation so they can level up and move to the next thing. Um, and that's definitely how we are with our personal training clients. So I guess you could say my personal training clients do conjugate, just not the safety bar and bands and chains and all that kind of cool stuff. We do a couple that do that, but most of our adults are not doing that, um, at least until they get to a certain point, And that's something they're interested in utilizing in their training because, like we said, they don't have to use that kind of stuff. So that's all I've got for this episode. Um, like I said, if you got any questions, feel free to let me know. This was uh, a very interesting thing to talk about. I kind of was reading some stuff the other day, and it just kind of got me going. I thought I'd talk about it. I'm still hunting down some speakers. I've got two that I need to, to schedule. Um, so hopefully you will hear some other people other than me here in the very near future. And then I'm going to try to secure um, some other very cool people as well that I've got in mind. Um, so thanks for tuning in for the episode, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Thirst for More podcast. Give us a follow on Spotify, iTunes, Google, and other streaming services. Feel free to visit our website, thirstgym.com. That's T-H-I-R-S-T-G-Y-M.com. And click on the podcast tab to look over show notes and extra free resources. You can also give us a follow on Instagram at Team Thirst. That's T-E-A-M period t-h-i-r-s-t or you can give me a follow at b smitley that's b-s-m-i-t-l-e-y for more updates on future episodes to come i'm your host brandon smitley and we'll catch you at the next episode